In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. The push to ease the pain at the pump. Hey, everybody, it's Senator Warnock, and I'm proposing that we suspend the federal gas tax. Welcome to the Politically Georgia podcast from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the podcast we want you to depend on for the most on-the-ground coverage of the 2022 election. I'm Patricia Murphy. Greg Bluestein is off today, and I'm joined by Tia Mitchell. We are two of the political insiders here at the AJC. And if you're just listening to us for the first time, welcome. And we invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Now, coming up later, we'll take a look at what's going on behind the scenes during the January 6th committee hearings. But first, gas prices are hitting voters where it hurts. And of course, it's a hot political issue as we move forward to the midterm elections. Senator Raphael Warnock has been calling for a suspension of the federal gas tax. Ordinary families are feeling the pinch, trying to buy gas and trying to buy groceries. We ought to cut their taxes and we ought to hold the oil and gas companies accountable. We're seeing record profits while people are paying record prices. And now President Joe Biden is also calling to lift the federal gas tax. By suspending the 18 cent gas tax, federal gas tax for the next 90 days, we can bring down the price of gas and give families just a little bit of relief. Okay, well, that's where we're going to pick up our conversation with Tia Mitchell. Hello, Tia. I see you up in D.C. Where are you right now? I am at the Capitol, and um, it's January 6th committee hearing day. So I'm going to chat with you for a little bit and then head over to the building where the hearing will take place in about an hour or so. Okay, perfect. We're going to talk about what you've been hearing in those hearings, so to speak, in just a little bit. But first, we're going to talk about the gas tax, because we've seen some movement on that this week. So bring us up to speed on what's happening with that and how Warnock is involved. This week, we heard from President Biden. We heard the little teaser just a moment ago, but he essentially lent his support to legislation that Warnock and a group of other senators, all Democrats, all either representing swing states or in tough reelection battles this fall. And back in February, they said, hey, gas prices are going up. We really think you should temporarily stop collecting the federal gas tax and make sure that those savings, the gas tax is about 18 cents a gallon. And so they have proposed that the federal government not collect it and make sure that the gas station owners adjust prices by the same amount. And it went nowhere. 
for what, four months. And now President Biden, now that gas has reached an all-time high, national average, um, a little bit under $5 right now, but it's gone down a few cents since that all-time high. But, you know, it's still very, very high. President Biden is now pretty much echoing support for the same legislation that Warnock and the others proposed. The problem is the problem. Yes, always. <laughs> yes, the president's support is there, but that was never the problem. The problem is it doesn't seem like there's enough members, not just Republicans opposing it, but there are some Democrats who have been skeptical about a gas tax holiday. They say number one, it's not enough. Eighteen cents a gallon when you're paying five dollars a gallon isn't enough relief to justify it. And they say it's too gimmicky. You hear that from Republicans that, you know, these tax holidays are just a gimmick and it doesn't really get to the root of the problem. Republicans want more more oil production in America is what they say will really help. And then there's also just the fiscal policy. If you suspend the federal gas tax for about three months, as Biden has proposed, that is one, I'm sorry, $10 billion with a B of revenue that the federal government would forgo that goes towards building roads and highways. And what the president is essentially saying is find other ways to offset that $10 billion. But what he's really saying is, you know, we don't care if that comes out of the deficit spending. And of course, there are Republicans and Democrats who say it's just $10 billion to only save 18 cents a gallon doesn't really make sense. So, yes, Biden has given it new energy to this debate, but it hasn't yet translated to actual movement in Congress, and it's Congress that would need to pass legislation. I wonder if Biden is helping or hurting the situation because it feels like such a hot political issue. And I say that, I mean, I'll say that because I just read a tweet from Scott Paradise, who is Uh, Herschel Walker's campaign manager. Here's his first tweet. Georgians are reminded daily at the gas pump and the grocery store that Biden-Warnock policies are an abject failure. You can't run from a record, Senator Warnock. So even though Warnock is trying to do this and has said, here's what we should do, and then here comes Biden, what, four months later? And oh, by the way, it might not even happen. Oh, and also some Democrats don't even think it's a good idea. You know, and in the meantime, like I went to get gas the other day. Now, granted, I had gotten down to three miles from empty, which was a bad choice. It was $80. I mean, I just sat there and stared at it. I'm like, oh my God. And people just feel that, you know, several, a couple times a week. And they're like, who's going to fix my problem? So where does it leave Warnock, do you think? What can he do now? Or what do you see him doing now with this situation? Yeah, I mean, definitely there is pain at the pump and it got more painful these last couple of weeks. And that's real. That's a problem for President Joe Biden, because even though he does not have a lot of control over gas prices and we need to be clear about that, Republicans like to blame him. And yes, he's president. The buck stops with him. But gas prices have so many, not just external in America, external pressures, but international pressures. It is true that the war in Ukraine that Russia began has affected gas prices globally. It's also true that there are, you know, other issues at play that were causing gas prices to rise. It's also true that oil companies, you know, 
are making a lot of money right now. All these things can be true. And those are things, you know, we are a free market society. The government can't force oil companies to not make good money right now or the gas companies. But at the end of the day, Biden is president. So this is one of the many economic indicators that are bringing his approval ratings down causing people to question whether different leadership may be needed when it um, comes time in 2024 to decide who's president. And as a result, Warnock, being a fellow Democrat, is going to be tied with Biden. He is aligned with Biden. He supports Biden policies, which means when there's criticism of Biden, that rightfully is going to become criticism of Warnock. It comes with the territory. It's one of the reasons why we think Democrats are in a lot of trouble for the midterms, because Biden could drag them down. That being said, here's where Warnock is able to differentiate himself on this particular issue. The federal gas tax has not been suspended, but what was suspended was the state gas tax, which yep, is about right. 29 cents a gallon. And Republicans take credit for that And Republicans day, take credit for it, yes. And it's not a gimmick. When the Republicans did it, it was good <laughs> policy. And Warnock is now able to say, and he does, I spoke to him yesterday on the issue. This is what he said. He said, Brian Kemp agrees with me. So I'm glad Brian Kemp listened to me. And he cut the state gas tax, just like I asked him to. That's the right thing to do. And now we need to cut the federal gas tax. So again, we know that I don't think when Brian Kemp decided to cut the state gas tax, he was thinking, I want to give Warnock some credit because I'm going to do exactly what Warnock said. But the, the timeline, Warnock's proposal did come first. And so it's in Georgia Republicans won't be able to use some of the same criticisms in Georgia against Warnock that they may be using in general against a gas tax holiday. Because if it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander. And then if it's bad, then it has to be bad all around. So it allows Warnock to still claim leadership on the issue, even when the federal government isn't moving. That's fascinating. Thank you for uh, sharing that. I hadn't heard that Warnock had said that. So that is coming to you first on the Politically Georgia podcast, everybody. One other uh, thing that we wrote about in the jolt today, Warnock has gotten a little bit movement forward on one of his other big proposals, which is to cap the cost of insulin at $35 a month. And that's had a little bit of bipartisan support as well. What's going on with that? So that's another initiative that Warnock has been talking about for months. And initially, it didn't seem to be going anywhere. One of the reasons why was because Warnock's bill, you know, he worked with fellow Democrats, but there are two senators, one Democrat, one Republican, that were trying to work out a solution that could get bipartisan support. And that bill just came out earlier this week. But key for Warnock is it includes that $35 a month cap on out-of-pocket costs for people who are using insurance to pay for insulin. That's something, you know, yes, it's a different legislation than Warnock's, but that key provision is in both. So that's another thing I talked to him briefly about yesterday. And he said, hey, if the bipartisan bill is the vehicle, that's fine. My $35 a month cap is in that new legislation. That's what I've been fighting for. That's what I think people need. Now, yes, there is now legislation with 
both a Republican and a Democrat behind it. But now what they need to do to allow it to become law is make sure that at least nine other Republicans in the Senate will get behind it. And I think that's kind of what's in the works now. It hasn't been announced whether or not they have enough Republicans willing to support it to avoid a filibuster in the Senate to actually get this cap going. That being said, the the overall, you know, this top line of saying we should lower the price of insulin, it should not cost people with diabetes hundreds of dollars every month to live because insulin is life-saving for patients with diabetes. So it's very popular. It should be easy to do. Here's where things get a little bit hairy. Everyone knows this is Warnock's initiative, and there are a lot of rumors, particularly in the Senate, that they are hesitant to move forward with this bill that they know Warnock will run on as a win. And I know there are people at home saying, this is what's wrong with politics. How are we allowing good legislation to languish because we don't want to, because of a partisan fight? And it sounds bad, but we have to, we're just here to be honest about it. And that's truly one of the factors, not all, but that's one of the factors that has slowed this down is because it's aligned with Warnock and Republicans are making a calculation that they don't want him looking too good going into the election. Okay. And we know how many of those Republican senators have supported and are supporting Herschel Walker in his run against Raphael Warnock. Well, we'll keep a close eye on that. We'll also see what Herschel Walker has to say about both of those initiatives. And I'm sure it will be plenty. And we'll keep our uh, listeners posted on that. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host today, Patricia Murphy, along with Tia Mitchell from Washington. And we are two of your three political insiders here at the AJC. And we think the Morning Jolt newsletter sets the stakes and the agenda for Georgia politics. And for a limited time, you can get six months of unlimited digital access to the AJC for just 99 cents. That's politics, investigations, breaking news, sports, dining, and all of our newsletters, including the Jolt for less than a buck. And it's our best offer of the year for the best journalism in Atlanta. And we like to thank Georgia and the country, to be honest with you. So go to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast to get unlimited digital access for the next six months for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast. So you always know what's really going on. And Tia, uh, we are talking to you right now. You're up on Capitol Hill, about to go into the fifth 
hearing of the January 6th committee and take us inside the room a little bit, especially last Wednesday or this past Wednesday when there were a parade of Georgians who came up. What did you see that we didn't see? So what you guys don't see on TV when you watch the hearing is the scope. It's a really big room and there are a lot of us media um, behind the witnesses And then even behind the media, sometimes there have been members of Congress, maybe a handful that kind of come in and out to hear what's going on. But the witnesses are kind of facing the members of the committee. It almost looks like a courtroom. And on the last hearing, which was Tuesday, the first part was a panel with like Brad Raffensperger and Gabe Sterling and the guy from Arizona, Bowers. And, you know, they talked about the threats and they talked about the pressure and it was very intense stuff. These are three Republicans who talked about what it was like experiencing the backlash for refusing to move forward with overturning the election. But when Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman walked out, it was like a different level of tension in the room, sadness in the room. Miss Moss was visibly nervous. Her mom was wearing a red shirt and sitting right behind her. And even before they introduced Miss Freeman, everyone's like, you can tell that's her mom. And her mom, even though Miss Freeman wasn't scheduled to testify in person, um, she was there as moral support for her daughter. There was even a point where she reached out and was patting her daughter on the back. And they both were dabbing their eyes because certain times throughout the hearing, they were brought to tears, just recounting. And the difference was these aren't, you know, seasoned bureaucrats. These aren't politicians or elected officials who are used to the public gaze. And there was such a difference in their testimony for that reason. Like, yes, what Raffensperger and Sterling said was disturbing and awful. And some of the threats they faced were very scary. But in a way, it was almost more intense to hear it coming from, quote unquote, regular people who like weren't known, weren't on a ballot, weren't in these high powered roles. These are just women getting hourly wages to count votes or to help people register to vote. And so it was really intense to watch. But I think it's really important for the American public to see and hear from them. Yeah. And we're going to listen to some of the audio um, from both Ruby Freeman and from her mom. I'm sorry, from both Shea Moss and her mom, Ruby Freeman. We've got that right here. I no longer give out my business card. I don't transfer calls. I um, don't want anyone knowing my name. I don't want to go anywhere with my mom because she might yell my name out over the grocery aisle or something. I don't go to the grocery store at all. I haven't been anywhere um, at all. I've gained about 60 pounds. I just don't do nothing anymore. I don't want to go anywhere. I second guess everything that I do. Um, it's affecting my life in a, in a major way, in every way, all because of lies. That is just so heartbreaking to hear. And we're going to listen right now to Ruby Freeman, who is Shea Moss's mother. There is nowhere I feel safe 
nowhere. Do you know how it feels to have the President of the United States to target you? The President of the United States is supposed to represent every American, not to target one, but he targeted me, Lady Ruby, a small business owner, a mother, a proud American citizen who stand up to help Fulton County run an election in the middle of the pandemic. So, Tia, what were the committee members? How were they reacting to that? The committee members reacted with shock and outrage, which that's been their reaction to a lot of the things that have come out during these hearings. But they also expressed a lot of appreciation, not to Ms. Moss and Ms. Freeman, but to rank-and-file election workers across America because they not only represent these workers, but they represent the type of threats that workers in a lot of states and a lot of jurisdictions face and continue to face because of lies, misinformation, and disinformation that started maybe with the 2020 election, but have continued. Even to this day, former President Trump is still spreading lies about the election process and saying it was stolen from him. So, you know, after the hearing ended, just about every member of the committee came up to Ms. Moss and Ms. Freeman and um, shook their hands or hugged them or said, thank you for testifying and thank you for your service. Um, It should be noted that they are no longer election workers and they were targeted. I also wanted to make sure I noted they were targeted by name. So when they say the president came after him, the president and his allies actually used their names repeatedly and cast them in ways that were not true, said they were passing a USB drive to try to change votes. So they were targeted specifically by Trump and his allies. Um, But other election workers, they said there's video of them and there are other election workers in the video. None of them, none of those workers in that video are still employed. And that not only shows the intimidation and the fear that many of them felt after being shown and put in this negative light, but again, if the violence or the threats of violence and just people not feeling safe is keeping them from working, that means we're losing a brain trust and a workforce that will make it harder to conduct free and fair elections in the future. So that's the long-term impact of what has occurred. And I think it's been uh, really hard for counties to find election directors because there is so much now, so much scrutiny and so much intense uh, speculation on their work. And, you know, people before it was just something that they wanted to do to help their communities. And now it really is a position that could involve physical danger, which is absolutely um, just terrifying. To your point about them being named, I was going through some old email today and I I saw a reader email that said, that was talking about Ruby F- Freeman specifically. And it said, we all know what Ruby Freeman did. I mean, this poor woman, <laughs> this poor grandma just doing her job. And because Donald Trump named her publicly and then that tape was played all around the world, it just put such a target on these women. And so I think to see them testify was really important just to get the just the individual human impact, which has been replicated, I think, 
over and over. And Tia, I had one more quick question for you about those hearings. I saw a picture on Twitter that you had uh, mentioned. It was a member of the Capitol Police hugging Miss Ruby. What was going on with that scene? So two of the more prominent Capitol Police officers who fought the mob on January 6th and have spoken about their experiences are, um, you have Harry Dunn and uh, Michael Fanone. And both of them have done a lot of media interviews and just really being on the forefront of speaking out about what happened on January 6th and demanding accountability for Trump and his supporters. And they speak from the perspective of officers who were there and fought the mob. Officer Fanon was from the Metro PD, the the Washington police force. But Harry Dunn is a Capitol Police officer, so he still works at the Capitol. And neither one of them have missed a hearing. They Sometimes Harry Dunn comes on his off days. He was the one who wore that shirt that had the word insurrection with like the dictionary definition of insurrection. Mm-hmm. He wore a shirt with the definition. But sometimes Harry Dunn comes in his uniform because, you know, he's working that day and I guess takes a long lunch break or whatever he needs to do to be able to sit in the hearings. And so on Tuesday, that's what he did. And so he was in his uniform, but he sat through the hearing. And at the end, he also approached Miss Moss and Miss Freeman, gave them a big hug, identified himself. And again, it's interesting because the, the committee itself is, we call it the January 6th committee. But what we've seen so far is a lot of talk about all the things that led up to January 6th and the pressure on the vice president and the pressure Today, we're going to talk about the pressure on the Department of Justice and the pressure on election workers and election officials. But what the committee is saying is all of that built up to the violence on January 6th. And so these officers being in the room, they've said that. They've said that pretty much since day one, that the violence they confronted that day was due to President Trump and his election lies. Oh my goodness, what an incredible story. Well, that is going to lead me to one of our favorite features on the podcast, which is our reader mailbag. And uh, this is not a question from a reader. It is sort of a comment and sharing of a story that I wanted to share with our other listeners. It is from Carmen McQueen, and it says, Good afternoon. I just listened to Wednesday's podcast and was so excited that you mentioned Brad Rappensberger could have won the Profile Encourage Award, kind of based on the way he had been received by the members of the committee. My daughter Caroline submitted the attached essay for the contest. Although she did not win, we were proud that her essay advanced to round two of the competition and was in the top 10% of 2,400 entries. So she, her daughter actually nominated Brad Raffensberger to the JFK Library to win the Profile Encourage Award. And she got into the top 10%, which I thought was really a nice story. Um, But I'm going to read you just the very last part of this essay so that we can see what her daughter is up to. She's going to be a freshman at the University of Georgia coming up. So this is how her daughter's essay ended when she was nominating Brad Raffensperger for the Profile and Courage Award. If there is one lesson to be learned from the actions of Secretary Raffensperger, it is this. Democracy is not given. It must be fought for with courage and integrity. So that's what the mailbag was today from one of our readers. And then, uh, Tia, our final segment that we're going to ask you for your thoughts on. It has been a huge week in Georgia politics, including 
runoffs, including the January 6th hearings, including a whole bunch of stuff going on down at the Fulton County Special Grand Jury that we don't know a whole lot about other than who's coming and who's going. But it's just been a wild week. And I know you've been burning the absolute (laughs) midnight oil because I see you in the jolt document at like 2 a.m. on our shared Google Doc. So I'll let you go first. Who is your who's up for the week if you have one? Yes, I am your late night jolter. Patricia is your early morning jolter. (laughs) Um, For who's up, I think I'm going to go with Senator Warnock because even if his gas tax holiday legislation and insulin cap proposal never make it into law, he's getting all the credit for it. And the news from this week allows him to go back out there and get another round of earned media for being in leadership up front on these issues that are pretty populist. And that is, it's been clear that that's kind of his approach going into the general election is to, you know, build goodwill by really backing initiatives that resonate with regular people. So I think even without clear wins, he would consider this a good week. I think he will take that from you. He will take any who's up he could possibly get right on through election day. I'm going to give Stacey Abrams my who's up because she went out on a limb and got behind three other statewide Democrats who all had runoffs and all three of those candidates won their elections. Charlie Bailey for Lieutenant Governor, B. Wynn for Secretary of State and William Boddy for Labor Commissioner. So now Stacey Abrams has the ticket that she wants. She has the election to get the job that she wants. Brian Kemp actually had a pretty great week, too, because his nemesis, Donald Trump, lost both of his endorsed elections. And so he I think Brian Kemp is in a position where he feels like he's also got the colleagues on the ticket that he wants as well. So maybe maybe it'll be a tie for who's up. What you have something to say? I was gonna say I have a I do have an honorable mention for who's up. Oh good. Okay. And that's Representative Sanford Bishop. Because I think if he wanted to choose which runoff candidate to face in the general election, he would prefer Chris West. And that's what he got. And that's part of the reason why there was so much national money backing Jeremy Hunt, because we know that there are so many black voters in the district there. It's not more than 50 percent now, but it's in the high 40s. And that's still enough for black voters to be able to sway the vote in the second correctional district. And Sanford Bishop and his supporters were worried that if Jeremy Hunt was on the ballot in November, he could siphon off some of that support from Black voters because he's another Black man. So this will make it easier, again, not guaranteed, but it will make it easier for Sanford Bishop to keep the vast majority of Black voters on his side. And I think, again, Chris West is a a hometown guy down in Thomasville, so he's not going to be you know, just the easy candidate by any chance. Um, there's still a chance Chris West could unseat Sanford Bishop, but I think Sanford Bishop got the candidate he wanted in the general election. Okay, well, congratulations, Sanford Bishop. I think it's his inaugural who's up this week. So <laughs> I'm sure I'll put that on his wall. So who is down for you this week, Dia? So I'm going to leave Marjorie Taylor Greene as my honorable mention because I don't want perennial perennial yes yes. so that's why I'm like I'm not going to make her my main who's down um I think who's down is Kasim Reed oh now Kasim Reed has been down but he's gone further down with this (laughs) audit who's downer 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's downer, more down. The audit that came out that has once again, I guess, reconfirmed or substantiated allegations going many years back that he charged the city of Atlanta improperly tens of thousands of dollars. And now they're saying he owes that money to the city. Now, I don't know if Kasim Reed can write $80,000 checks. And I don't know if he'll ever be forced to pay the city back. But the report that came out that our amazing AJC colleagues covered is that, you know, once again, Kasim Reed has been accused of financial improprieties when he was mayor of Atlanta. Okay. Okay. Well, that is who's down for you. I think Kasim Reed could write an $83,000 check based on the jobs he had between his uh, last mayor's run and his uh, being the mayor. I I think he might need to get out his checkbook. Um, So my who's down this week is Yale Law School, a dark horse. Yale, there were two Yale Law School students who ran for office as House candidates, two Republicans, Patrick Witt at first was in the 10th Congressional District, then he moved over to the Insurance Commissioner. And Jeremy Hunt is who lost to Chris West down in the second congressional district. And both of those gentlemen, when I saw on their resume, I'll admit, I'm like, wow, that's impressive. Yale Law School. <laughs> but it turns out that voters did not feel the same way. That was not, <laughs> that did not seal the deal for those two Yale Law School students. I don't know if either one of them has graduated yet, but you know, we'll probably see both of them again um, because Yale Law School certainly taught both of them or maybe strengthened both of their communications packages. So I think we'll, we have not seen the last of either one of them, maybe after graduation. Tia, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to let you scoot out to the committee hearing and I encourage everybody to continue to read Tia's just really excellent coverage of what's happening in Washington, especially in these hearings, which are so important. Well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. All right. Well, we'll have you again soon. And you can count on new episodes of this podcast to come out every Wednesday and Friday or whenever news breaks. You know we'll be there. We will see you next time on the Politically Georgia podcast from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about like historically black colleges and universities, Atlanta's thriving art scene, and the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.